The scripture reading for today is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. For it is superfluous for me to write to you about this ministry to the saints. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the Macedonians, namely, that Achaia has been prepared since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I have sent the brethren in order that our boasting about you may not be made empty in this case, so that, as I was saying, you may be prepared. Otherwise, if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to speak of you, will be put to shame by this confidence. So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift, so that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, Lord, again, we just humble ourselves in your sight and we just confess that we are in such desperate need of you. Lord, um, I am in great need of you right now uh, just to help me to deliver your word to your people that are hungry and anxious. And, and uh, well, I don't know if they're anxious, but they are hopefully anticipation. There's anticipation, Lord, of hearing from your word. And so, God, I just pray that you would fill me with your wisdom. Help me as much as possible to teach your word rightly and uh, to encourage your church lovingly. And I just pray for your church, Lord, that you would help them to have ears to hear what uh, your spirit is saying to us today in the text. And we just pray, Father, that you would uh, just rest heavy on your church today, Lord, not because we are in the most profound doctrine of Scripture or most mysterious doctrine, but because we are in the Christian life and because we are walking with our God and we seek to walk with our God like God told Abraham, walk before me and be blameless. I am the Lord Almighty. And so, God, help us to take our calling serious. Help us to make our calling and our election sure today. Help us to, to, to search our hearts. Pray that your heart would search us, that, that, that your mind in the Scripture would search our hearts, that your spirit will search us. Lord, examine us, Lord, and convict us and correct us and rebuke us. And, Lord, um, admonish us today through your word. And Father, please build us up and grant to us great assurance of our salvation, of our hope. Give us great confidence in the things of God today. We pray your blessing on our time, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, um, I'm excited for everything that's going on. Um, just great to be in Sunday school today and listening to Genesis going through. Uh, just never cease to be amazed at how God has chosen to reveal himself to us in the, uh, the narratives of scripture, the stories of the great patriarchs of the faith, and how he's chosen just to reveal himself, redemptively speaking, through the history of his people. And it's just amazing to see that. I'm also excited to have um, uh, apologetics training in our church. You know, a lot of churches don't do apologetics training. And a lot of times when they do it, it's bad. And so I'm praying that we will have um, a, a kind of a corrector to a lot of that here in our church. Uh, no pressure, Jason. But uh, just, uh, you know, anticipating how the Lord is going to use uh, the, uh, the whole concept of, of us being able to, um, in our individual lives, to give a defense, to give an answer for our hope 
And uh, uh, just nothing would bring me greater joy than to know that you can go to anybody in this church and they will give you a sound answer, a reason for the hope that lies within them. And uh, that they don't cower away when someone comes up to them, some unbeliever at work or at home in the neighborhood that has a question for you. You don't need your husband. You don't need your pastor because you are equipped to answer them, at least to some minimal degree. You're equipped to share with them the, the good news of Jesus Christ. And so I am very excited about that. Um, well, we're right in the middle of a section here in 2 Corinthians, just diving right in now, that deals with the whole concept of giving. That's what we've been looking at. And uh, we're kind of in the middle now of this whole section. And we're reaching sort of a high point. The high point really comes in the next few verses here. But this section here is very, very important. And you know, as I was going through the... Um, the text, there are some real exegetical challenges to this whole portion of Scripture. Uh, on the face of it, you know, it seems pretty simple, right? Paul is saying, look, get ready, I'm coming, get the gift ready, and uh, don't uh, give yourself to covetousness. We could close in prayer right there, and that's the whole gist of the sermon. But there is a lot more here for our instruction and for our edification. You just got to do a little bit more digging I think, and then ask the right questions about the text in order for us to gain the right principles and to, to learn the right lesson here. Okay, so what I want to entitle this, this study here is securing generosity in the church because we've looked at generosity already. But this whole section here comes as a, as a pastor, Paul, protecting the church from covetousness and from other things, getting the church ready for this bountiful gift, as he calls it, and making sure that the church's generosity is uh, secure, that the church's generosity doesn't give way to other things. And we talked a lot about generosity, so here Paul is looking to protect that generosity, and there are four things, four steps we can say, four practical steps that Paul takes in order to do that. Number one, Paul begins by avo avoiding compulsion, avoiding compulsion. Look at verses 1 and 2 again with me. It says, For it is superfluous for me to write to you about this ministry to the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the Macedonians, namely, that Achaia has been prepared since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. Uh, the very first uh, qualification here, it's kind of a rare qualification. Paul doesn't do it all the time. But in the context of money, Paul is saying, look, I don't want to be superfluous. In other words, I don't want to exaggerate. I don't want to go overboard. I don't want to beat a dead drum here about this whole issue with uh, the, 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 the giving. But then he goes on to talk about exactly that, which he says, I don't want to beat a dead horse. But anyway, here I go anyway. I think the reason he does this is to strike a tone with them. He wants to do this in order that they would be rest assured, that they could rest assured that he is not being domineering, that, that he's not being compulsory in the way that he's uh, addressing this whole I issue of money. And so he's not trying to lead them by compulsion, but he's trying to lead them in a gracious and in a pastoral manner. And so hopefully 
that will sort of be brought out here. But you can see several significant reasons why Paul's motives are right in this opening text. Number one, because they were involved in a legitimate ministry. He mentions that ministry here, the ministry to the saints. Now, we know what that ministry is. That ministry is referring to the ministry to the Jerusalem church that was on hard times. They were, they were experiencing uh, financial uh, 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 just a catastrophe where the church was literally in need for other churches to come in and rescue them uh, f- of their poverty. And so they were engaged in a legitimate ministry. Oftentimes, I have heard so many Christians disgruntled at the various capital campaigns that their churches are putting on because the ministries are illegitimate. The church has a nice building, but they want a nicer building. And so they want to raise $5 million in order to put a Starbucks in the church. You know, you've heard of those kind of stories. Or it's just a ministry that's not viable. It's not a ministry that's ran through the local church or a ministry that is under any authority. Or it's just some rogue ministry that people want to want you to be a part of. And those are not viable reasons to give your money. But when it is a viable, legitimate ministry, we should be ready to support it at all costs. The second thing is that Paul has done a really good job of knowing his people. He knows the situations that are going on in Corinth, the situation in Corinth. And he knows that what he's asking them is not that they go against their conscience, not that they should go against what they're even able to give. Look back at chapter 8. Verse 12, he says, for if the readiness is present, it is acceptable, it might be ready, but is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what a person does not have. For this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction, but by way of equality. That's what Paul's looking for in this whole undertaking of the contribution to Jerusalem, equality. He doesn't want to harm the church. He doesn't want to put the church out in order to build others up. And so he doesn't in any way have any sort of underhanded designs for this financial gift. And then third of all, he, he has taken pride in their generosity because, of it, because it is a godly generosity. And so he is not manipulating them because they themselves have expressed a certain level of genuine generosity. Matter of fact, Paul points, points out this very thing. If you go back to chapter 8, verse 10, he mentions this very thing. He says, I give my opinion in this matter, for this is to your advantage, who were the first to begin a year ago, not only to do this, but also to desire. So there, the church is said to have had the right motive for giving. And finally, Paul's petition was also uh, rooted in pure motives, I believe, because they were willing to do it. and They had committed, they had pledged themselves to do this very thing. And he'll mention that a bit later. He says, he says that this is also has to do with his boast. He moves on, he says, of this whole readiness of which I boast to you about the Macedonians. So Paul boasted to other churches about the fact that this church was genuinely generous and genuinely willing to give. The Corinthian church was in the region of Achaia, and in the region of Achaia, there was probably other congregations. Now, work with me here in this text because it says this. 
He says, I boasted about you to the Macedonians, namely, that Achaia has been prepared since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. Now, most of who? Now, most commentators at this point point to the fact that the them is probably referring to the Macedonians in the context. So he's afraid that the Macedonians who, ha- who, who they themselves have stirred up earlier are going to come and find them unprepared. Uh, that is the position that MacArthur takes. That's a position that Harris takes. That's the position that um, a lot of other guys in, in their commentaries in 2 Corinthians take. I actually, I, I'm not convinced by that because for several reasons. Um, I think the reason why he mentions the whole region of Achaia is because it is distinct from Corinth. And so when it says Achaia has been prepared, most people say that's just another way of saying Corinth because Corinth is in the region of Achaia. I don't think that's right. I think that the, the Corinthian church had affected the churches all around them in the region of Achaia. Churches, for example, in Romans chapter 16, verse 1, we have a reference to the church in Centuria. That is right down the street from the Corinthians. I think the Corinthians stirred up the Centurions and many other congregations in that region right there. See, their generosity was infectious. It became exemplary. Other churches started catching fire because of the example of this church. And so, far from being compulsory, that word, I'm trying to get that word right all week, compulsion, but that's the right word. Because Paul's not trying to manipulate this church to give out of any other motive than, look, you yourselves have already been willing to do this. You yourself have pledged yourself to do this very thing. And so he's just setting before them their own example that has led to the zeal of other people. Their zeal has stirred up other people even in the surrounding region. And, you know, this brings up a whole other point, and that is the manner in ministry, the manner of ministry. Pastoral ministry should not be done under compulsion. Turn with me to First uh, Peter chapter 5, very well-known passage. You guys know, most of you probably even know this passage, but First Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, this is an indispensable text for pastoral ministry. If you're to be a pastor, if you'd have a heart for ministry, you have to get your hands around this passage of Scripture right here because there are so many principles right here that are good for our understanding, good for our arsenal, especially those who are called to pastoral ministry. But look at verse 1. It says, 1 Peter 5, 1, he says, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. I have to qualify all that. <laughs> That's a lot. But look at the way he exhorts them. First of all, he's humble, isn't he? Who's talking here? Peter. Who is Peter? Just the pastor? He's also an apostle. And so, but he first humbles himself by identifying with them and saying, look, I am your fellow elder. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. But then he qualifies that and says, a witness of the sufferings of Christ. See, he was there with Christ because he was an apostle. And he says, and a partaker of the glory that is to come or is to be revealed. And that, that points to, look, we have the same eschatological hope. We're heading towards the same future, you and I, okay? The great assize for all of us as ministers. Then he exhorts them. Here's the imperative. Shepherd the flock of God among you. That's the command. 
Shepherd them, exercising oversight, not under compulsion. That is, without compulsion, without manipulation, without throwing a guilt trip on people. There are so many guilt-driven ministries. I just kind of make jokes about that, but it's true. There are so many pastors that lead out of compulsion. They're trying to belabor things on people. They're trying to throw you know, burdens on people that they themselves don't even bear. And there's so much temptation to do this. That's why pastoral ministry is so, so incredibly dangerous. Because God has put you in a position not just to preach. Not just to preach, right? I mean, there are several people. I have met brother after brother after brother that is gifted to preach. No question about it. Oratorically gifted. Mentally gifted. Gifted with incredible intelligence. No doubt can come up here and preach far better than I can. But you know what? Sometimes God doesn't choose those, those men. Sometimes God doesn't choose the man just because he's gifted. Matter of fact, he doesn't choose them that, for that reason at all. He chooses them as a trophy of grace because he wants to appoint someone to, a, to this pastoral task out of his own sovereign good pleasure. But part of that task, my friends, is not just to preach, but to shepherd. And the way that you shepherd is very important. Peter admonishes a whole collection of elders. Don't do it out of, out of compulsion. But voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, do it. Do it out of your own heart. And verse 3 says, not as lording it over those who are allotted to your charge. I don't try to push my weight around as an elder. Say, don't you know how much authority I have as an elder of this church? That's just not the way that pastoral manner should be done. It should be done with tenderness. It should be done with gentleness. And he says it should be done by proving to be an example. You want your church to be godly, you be godly, show them the example, and then they'll follow you. That's the way it should work. And then he says, and when the chief shepherd appears, I love that, the chief shepherd. See, all shepherds are just under, under shepherds. We're just working for the chief shepherd, right? We're little shepherds. He's the big shepherd. He's the chief shepherd. He's the eschatological shepherd that will appear... He says, and you will receive the unfading crown of glory. There's a, and that's the way that you do it. That's how you can come into the, the glory of the ministry and the, reap the benefits of pastoral ministry by, do, by knowing that you did it God's way. Now, the second thing is this. He didn't also just qualify things and make sure they understood. He wasn't trying to lead them with a compulsion or under compulsion. But he also promoted further cooperation. Look at verse 3. He says, But I have sent the brethren in order that our boasting about you may not be made empty in this case, so that, as I was saying, you may be prepared. So the delegation, these brothers, are coming. They're coming for, uh, with a purpose. That purpose is to prepare them. This word right here is to cause the church to be ready to cooperate. Cooperation is key. If you look back at the end of chapter 8, we saw that cooperation, right? Another admonition to cooperate with these men. He says, therefore, verse 24, chapter 8, verse 24, openly before the churches, show them the proof of your love and of our reason of boasting with you for, about you. So there, Paul expects the church to be ready to cooperate to be ready to do that. And Paul, for Paul to boast about the church, he was boasting about their commitment to this work. 
But even more than that, he was boasting about them and their commitment to Christ. Because you remember earlier, in terms of the, the generosity of the Macedonians, if you go back to chapter 8, he talks about the fact that that church had first given themselves to the Lord and then to the apostles. So first, he, they, the church gives themselves to the Lord, meaning they commit to the Lord. They are committed to the Lord. So first they check their devotion to the Lord himself, and then they check their participation with the leadership. And Paul does this all the time. For example, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4, Paul is always commending faith. Do you commend faith? I pray that you do. I pray that you commend faith wherever you see it, in your children, in your spouse, in your home, among the church, brothers and sisters. We should be commending one another for our faith. He says, therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all of your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. In a similar way, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19 says this, for who is our hope or our joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and our joy. You see, a church has uh, a great ability to play into the proud, boastful, uh, sort of glorious exaltation of a pastor over his church. That he has the ability at the coming of Christ to be able to point to his congregation and say, look, there is the bride that I've prepared for you. A chaste, spotless, and pure bride. That's what the church ought to be. And sometimes the church is doing so good in terms of its fruit, its labor, and in terms of its, its, uh, uh, its gospel ministry, we could say, that its reputation literally precedes it. So you don't even have to say anything. It's just the fruit is evident right? 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 8 is such an instance in where the church's fruit spoke for itself. Listen to what he says, the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. That's excellent because that is talking about evangelism. The church has so sounded forth the word of God and, and most commentators agree. That is speaking about the proclamation of the gospel. That's not just talking about expository preaching on Sunday. That is talking about the whole church. It says you, plural, all of you. The church was sounding forth the word of God, not only in Achaia, in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. That's beautiful. That's obedience. That's a church that is functioning properly. That's a church that's healthy, thriving, alive. Who wants to go to a dead church? I don't. I want to go to a church where people are passionate about God, that are zealous for good works, and that are zealous for the gospel and getting the gospel out. So Paul's fear, going back to this verse, verse 3, Paul's fear is that his boasting would be made empty. The word there just literally made of Made, made void, that it would be emptied. He's, you know, he's built up this church, and now this church has the potential to undermine everything Paul has said about them. 
It's kind of like your child, you know, you boast about your child, or maybe you're getting together with different ladies in the neighborhood, and you talk about how great your son, your daughter is, and how great, how, you know, they're homeschooled, and how great they behave, and blah, 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 and then you have a party with the people in the neighborhood, and all of a sudden, your child gets in trouble at the party. I mean, that would really undermine everything. Hey, I thought, you know, so-and-so behaved themselves. Well, that's kind of what's going on here. This church has the potential to undermine what Paul has said about them. And he doesn't want that generosity to be, uh, to be undermined. And so there's a potential here for contempt, for shame, for shame. And uh, that brings us to our next point. The other step that Paul takes is not just, therefore, to promote cooperation, and it's not just, therefore, to avoid compulsion, but it's also to circumvent contempt, to not make it possible to be put to shame in the church. He says in verse 4, Otherwise, if any of the Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, very key word, we, not to speak of you, which is a way of saying both of us, will be put to shame by this confidence. And so Paul doesn't want to arrive in Corinth with brethren from Macedonia to whom he's boasted about and then find them unprepared. Where's the gift? Where's the money that you were supposed to set aside? You have it ready? What do you mean the families haven't been giving? I thought everybody committed to do this. What? We've got to leave. We're on our way back to Judea. You see what could happen there. And so Paul is very, very afraid. Of, he's saying, look, make sure they're fit. Make sure they're ready. Why do I say fit? Why do I say ready? Because that word, that long word that he uses there in Greek, I won't even pronounce it for you, but it literally means the word there where he says unprepared. That word literally means not in readiness or not in fitness. It's a technical term that's not found anywhere else in the New Testament. And when you do find it, like, for example, Josephus and other extra-biblical sources, it's talking about military contexts. It's talking about a soldier not being ready to fight. What could be more dreadful than that? You go out to battle, and all of a sudden you're so, oh, how do you put this, put this in? And you're, gun, what? Uh, this, you know, this, this camouflage doesn't even uh, fit. You know, that, that's terrible. You're going out into a battle zone with people who are unprepared you're going to lose the fight. These people were not prepared for the spiritual war. He didn't want them to be unprepared, that is. And he wanted the church to be spiritually fit, to be up to the task. Oh, I tell you what, there's nothing better than being surrounded by people that are up to the task. That if you ask them to do something, they do it. They're ready. They're fit. They're vigilant. They're spiritually disciplined. That's what Paul tells Timothy, right? Timothy, discipline yourself for godliness. No soldier in, is entangled in the affairs of this life. Don't be bogged down by worldliness. Be ready for spiritual battle. And that's what Paul wants for this church. He wants them to be engaged. He wants them to be ready to be the honorable church that he's been saying that they are. Matter of fact, if you look back at chapter 8, verse 21, he says that thing already. He says, we've regard for what is honorable. He's already said that. Not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. So in the midst of all of this, Paul is afraid that his ministry is going to be undermined. Sometimes it appears like Paul is a little paranoid, but not really. When you know what's at stake in ministry, you can speak the way that Paul speaks. Paul says, 
all over in, in his letters that he didn't want to do anything that might cause, uh, you know, any kind of shame or disrepute to come to his ministry. And that's why he opens up the letter by saying, our testimony is this, a good conscience. That's his testimony. He says in chapter 8, verse 20, so that no one will discredit us. Why are we going through all these things about finances? Why are we jumping through all these hoops and qualifying all these statements and making sure you're ready? And if Macedonians come and you're not ready, and if we're there and you surprise us because you've been laxed, why? Because someone will discredit us in the administration of his generous gift. And can you imagine, does Paul need a financial scandal on his hands? Of course not. That will ripple through all the churches of Asia. No. And that's why Paul is taking every precaution not to be put to shame. Not to be put to shame. By this, excuse me, he says, by this confidence that word confidence, I think the NASB missed it here. The word that he uses there is hupatase, which very interesting, but this word here, hupastase, that word literally means to undertake something. It means to engage in a project. It, it, it only rarely means confidence in very rare circumstances. And lexically speaking, that's not what uh, most lexicons defined this word in this verse as. It is literally this undertaking. Now, the reason I even bring that out is because it's, it's just Paul showing them, look, you undertook this, this, this whole contribution, this whole project of giving. This was something you pledged to undertake and if you fall back now, it will discredit the ministry. Amazing. And I think this speaks volumes to us individually about what it means to keep your word, right? To be men and women of principle. Men and women who, when they say they're going to do something, they do it. And when they make their pledges, you know, we're just uh, meeting with a, a, a brother for church membership, uh, our brother Ryan Holly. He's not here right now, and this is not to speak against him. <laughs> but... Uh, but as we were going over the various obligations, it just really struck me, wow. Because, I, you know, in, in, in our membership meeting, we say, look, as elders, as pastors of this church, Alan and I and the rest of the leaders, the deacons or whoever, we bear an awesome responsibility to shepherd you in a, in a right way. Uh, to make sure that nobody preaches over you that is not fit, not ready. To make sure that, you know, nothing ever underhanded ever takes place in the church. To make sure that we're praying for you, that we're shepherding you, we're teaching you, that we're going to be, you know, we're going to do what the Scriptures call us to do. There's great obligation. But then we flip the tables over and we say, but you know what? You have obligations too. You're obligated to, to financially support the local church. You're obligated to pray for your brothers and sisters in the church, to do all the one another's of Scripture. There's an obligation both ways. And all of that can be undermined by simple, laxed attitude towards your obligations. A simple uh, a, 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 a lapse of integrity where you don't take your obligations in church serious. It's not even, it's not even, it's not even a, a big deal whether you're here or whether you're not here. It's a big deal. It affects things. Absolutely. And so, the fourth thing is this. Let's move on to the fourth thing. The fourth thing is not just does he want to circumvent contempt, that is, he wants to remove the possibility of shame, but he also wants the church to overcome covetousness. Look at verse 5. 
longest verse out of this whole thing. He says, So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift. I think that is so intentional. So that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. Very interesting language. And so the very first thing that Paul wants to do here to this church in order to secure the generosity of this church is to explain one more time what the delegation is for. So he's trying to empower the brethren. They're coming in his place. They're coming as his emissaries, his representatives, bearing his authority, if you would. And he wants the church, like we saw in chapter 8, verse 24, to embrace these men wholeheartedly, not to hesitate. But they're coming on ahead of time to do what? To make sure that they arrange beforehand, that is, before he comes. Paul wanted things to be ready so that when he came, he could just come, collect the offering, and go to Judea. Okay? So these guys have a huge responsibility ahead of them. But he wants them to come and to make good on their previously promised bountiful gift. So I see two things really going on here. Their, their, their work is literally twofold of what they are, what they are expected to do. It's, and it's pastoral in, in nature. First, they're there to secure their generosity by staying committed to their word. Go back to 1 Corinthians, or if you want, I could just read it to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. Just kind of give us a snapshot of what was going on. A little window, a little portal into the times and places and events of what was going on during this giving. Because that ha- this, this tells us where they previously were charged to do this. He says in verse 1, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, There you see just how far-reaching this collection was. Galatia, that's on the other side of the Mediterranean. Do so, he says, you do so also. On the first day of the week, each one of you, the first day of the week, why? Because the first day of the week was Sunday. Sunday was the day they were supposed to gather for church and have church. Why? Because that was the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And that was the apostolic pattern for the early church. He says, put it aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. That's what he's trying to circumvent. He's trying to circumvent this idea of getting there, arriving, the church is unprepared, and now they're scrambling around for, come on, get to raise some money for Paul. (laughs) That's exactly what he wants to avoid. See, there's a certain level of professionalism. That's right, I use the word. Professionalism, excellence in the ministry. You don't just string things together, and that's a, listen, listen, that's a, that's a really, uh, that's a really daring thing for me to say for, you know, a young church plant like this. It looks like we're, we're patching together all kinds of stuff last minute, but this is what we're striving for. We're striving for efficiency. That's what we're striving for. Efficiency in ministry brings glory to God, period. I love it because God is a God of order. God is a God of authority. God is a God of, 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 of professionalism, if you would. He loves it when his children are organized. You think only people with preaching gifts get, get, get credit in the church? No, there's a reason why God gives people administrative gifts. Because we need those brothers and sisters that are gifted administratively 
to help the pastor out because, you know, if you leave it to him, it's just going to fall apart. He needs people to come around him and, 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 get, and get around the church and, and to inject their expertise into the church, whether it's finances or anything else. I love the body of Christ for that reason. Because the body of Christ is made up of many members, and every member has to play its part. And God has given every single one of you guys gifts, and you should be zeroing in like a laser beam on your gifts and be saying, what are my gifts? How can I bless this church? How can I come to this church and make sure that my giftings are being used? And there's a, there's literally, there's a, there's a, there's a flow, there's a, there's, there's a way for me to express my giftedness here. There's an outlet that's the word I was looking for. There's an outlet for my gifts. It's not just everyone stand around and listen to the preacher and everybody just don't worry about it. No, everybody's got gifts and the church and the people right next to you are waiting to benefit from your gift. Are you gifted with administration? Well, we might need you. Are you gifted with hospitality? Somebody in our church needs fellowship. Have them over. Are you gifted with mercy ministry? Well, maybe somebody in the church needs you to come over and help them clean. Whatever it is, search out your gifts and thrive in your gifts as we say. Be as righteous as you want to be. Brothers and sisters, against these things, there is no law. You want to be generous? Be generous. You want to be hospitable? Be as hospitable as you want to be. You want to have a barbecue at your house every weekend when you invite the whole church? Go for it. <laughs> I don't see any volunteers. <laughs> But you know what I mean. This is how God has formed the church. The second thing, not only staying committed to their word, but the delegation, these brothers, Titus, the two unnamed brothers, they were there to also secure their generosity by fleeing from idolatrous greed. And I use that word idolatrous greed because this Greek word here for covetousness, we are told by Paul, is idolatry. Covetousness is idolatry. When you covet you are setting up an idol in your heart. You are longing for something that only God should take the place. You feel like, I'm incomplete with, unless I have that. And the way that you get it is evil. It's wrong. Uh, let me read you something that uh, John MacArthur, I think, was just spot on here. Uh, John MacArthur's commentaries are really good. Sometimes I have to discipline myself not to read them because I feel like I'd be quoting John MacArthur all the time. It's time for some fresh manna, right? <laughs> actually heard of a brother who had to get rid of his John MacArthur commentaries because he kept quoting him so much. He wanted a little bit of off, you know, authenticity in his own preaching. Hey, whatever it takes. I'm not too proud to acknowledge that. To say, hey, MacArthur's a much better preacher, much more eloquent, much smarter than I am, can just articulate things better. And a bunch of stuff I disagree with him about, so I wouldn't quote him everywhere, but... But in, in sections like this, it's good, okay? Listen to what he says. Few sins are as ugly as covetousness. Few sins manifest selfishness and pride so graphically as grasping for more at the expense of others. Covetousness is built into the very fabric of depraved human nature. For from within and out of the heart of men, declared Jesus, proceed deeds of coveting. Mark 7 22. Sinners covet because they have a heart tainted with greed. Covetousness, which is greed, is also idolatry. And those who habitually practice it will not inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 6.10, Ephesians 5.5. 5. 
Covetousness or greed characterizes a depraved mind, leads people to oppress others, and spurns the Lord. Christians are not to associate with any so-called brother who is covetous. That's amazing. That text, as a matter of fact, chapter 5, verse 11, 1 Corinthians, that text right there is the reason why I won't associate with prosperity preachers. Because it also says you cannot associate with a so-called, or so-called brother if he is a swindler. And I believe most faith teachers, most prosperity preachers, they're swindlers. They're stealing money from God's sheep. They're fleecing the flock of God, and I want nothing to do with them. That is a completely, discred- completely discreditable ministry. It's sad. It's really pathetic, but people make a huge living on it. Don't be deceived. Many false teachers are in the world. So sometimes commitments, going back to this whole flow of text here now, sometimes commitments that we make in faith can be undermined by the passage of time. Let me say that again. Sometimes commitments that are made in faith can be undermined by the passage of time. Too much time elapses. Paul waits too long to send out the delegation. And the church can easily grow apathetic. The church can easily grow unfocused, unprincipled, and lackadaisical. Zeal needs fulfillment. Zeal needs an outlet. Zeal needs to be realized or it will quickly fizzle out. That's why Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, fan into flame your gift because your gifts are there and they can burn bright or they can be snuffed out. And there are some of us, there are some of you that need to fan into flame whatever gift God has put within your heart. Now, I want to end this way because there is an interesting parallel right here in this text. And turn with me to Philippians chapter 4 as we do this. Philippians chapter 4, okay? But this text gives us a picture of giving, this generosity, and really, we call, let's call it what it is. Financial giving in the local church is worship. Worship. That's really what it is. Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 17 to 18, he says, right after he says, look, I don't seek the gift itself, the things that the Philippians had promised to give Paul, that they were committed to provide for Paul on the mission field, well, literally in, under house arrest. He says, that's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for the profit which increases to your account. Now, either Paul is being really shrewd there with his language, or he's being really sincere. Either he's being really shrewd, or he's being really sincere. And I think the latter is true, or I wouldn't be a Christian, right? He's not being shrewd here. He's being sincere in that when the church gives this way, there is something that redounds to the account, spiritually speaking, of the church. There is a blessing contained here. And that's why we have to see it as worship. I tell you what, most of us, we should be so looking forward to the offering in our church. When you come to church, one of the things that should be, should be on your mind and should be on your heart is, boy, how great is it 
that I get to worship God when I put this check in the box. Because we don't pass a plate, sorry. Because it's worship. And there are principles embedded, and we're going to look at them really next week, Lord willing, that there is a blessing in store for you. I know that sounds because of the prosperity movement and how perverted they have, they have twisted and just how they've perverted the, the scriptures to their own destruction. I know that sounds so faith preachy. Oh, here we go. There's a blessing for you to put your money in. Sure. But there is. Verse 17, I told you to go to Philippians 4, verse 18. I've received everything in full. I have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent. So they sent this gift through Epaphroditus. A fragrant aroma. Ooh, that's a dead giveaway. An acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. That's what I mean by giving is worship. Giving is worship. And my God, this is the promise. It leaves, this, is, this is an act where in the worship, it leaves the worshiper blessed. It says, and my God will supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. You need not fear that when you give your money to church, that God is not going to take care of you. But you can know for certain that God will and has bound himself to his word to say, your needs will be taken care of. Now worship me, which means bring all the walls down. Take all of the barriers off of your heart and say, but if I give that money, I just don't know what they'll do with it. Listen, you can think of 101 reasons why to be grudgingly with your money. And Satan can give you 101 more. But God has told you, open your hand and let it go. Who put it in your hand in the first place? <laughs> right? See, that's only something that we do when we make the mistake that our springs come from our own efforts. Well, what are you talking about? If I wouldn't have gone to work and worked 40 hours, I wouldn't have got a paycheck. Who gave you the ability to work? Who opened that, that employment opportunity for you to do that? Who let you learn those skills? Who, who, who's the one that kept you from getting in a car accident today so that you wouldn't be able to bring a paycheck tomorrow? See, this is a whole issue of perspective. We give because we acknowledge, God, you are the true giver. I don't want to spoil it, but we have to go to chapter 9 at the very end of the text here for the ultimate principle in all this. The climax is this. After he urges the church to give generously, he says, thanks be to God for his, exclamation point, indescribable gift. God is the true giver. And what's he talking about there, gift? Well, there's several views on what he's talking about. I think the gift is Christ. Jesus Christ on a cross. That is the greatest act of generosity that we have ever seen. One more verse. Chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich beyond our wildest dreams, he didn't live in houses made out of you know, drywall. <laughs> he was in an eternal habitation 
of glory. And it says, he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that, this is the purpose clause, you, through his poverty, might become rich. He blessed us, he emptied himself so that you and I can be full. He empt- this is what it means for God to hand over his indescribable gift, that Christ would come and do that for us. Let's pray. Father, certainly when it comes to the issue of giving, uh, the gospel is right at the center of it all. And so, Lord, I pray that we would have the right perspective, Lord. I pray that we too would uh, be free from covetousness, that whatever money we give to the church, however much the amount is really irrelevant, the heart is everything. And Lord, whatever we give, let it be unaffected by covetousness. Let it be a blessing, exactly as it says here. Let it be a bountiful gift. Let it be worship that rises up out of our hearts and naturally just wants to, just wants to give all of the credit and wants to give all of the honor where honor is due, honor to your name. And so God, help us to be obedient in this area and help us to to understand it better for what it really is. I pray that you would give us greater light as we go on in chapter 9. And work on our hearts. Do, uh, do your work in our hearts, Lord. Change us from within. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.